everyone, I'm back. That's right. All the things with Luke Tim is back. Um, I know I haven't done a podcast in forever, but I'm going to change that. I'm going to start doing these again. I miss doing them. Life got busy there for a while, but uh, I figured what a great time to start again since everybody's absorbing a lot more online content and listening to podcasts. And uh, I actually happen to know a virologist, Brian Gentry, joined me today to give me a rundown of what this virus COVID-19 is, um, some interesting things about it, and uh, God bless it, uh, just a wonderful opportunity to hear some hope in the midst of all of this uh, when it comes to this virus. So yeah, he's a virologist. Uh, Everybody thinks because he's a professor of pharmacology, he's a pharmacist, but he's not. Uh, He helps make pharmacists, and he really knows his stuff when it comes to viruses, and I think you're going to see that, so... Yeah, it's good to be back, and uh, hopefully we'll have more of these in the future. But uh, otherwise, without further ado, let's uh, hear from Brian Gentry, Dr. Brian Gentry. There's going to be a new normal and what that actually means. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Luke. Everybody knows that. Who are you? Uh, I am Brian Gentry. I am an associate professor of pharmacology uh, at Drake University in the College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. And most people assume that means you are an expert in pharmacology. I am. But also in virology. Well, that's my specific discipline. Right. So that that was a surprise. <clears throat> I... I I think I knew that just from hanging out with you or whatever, but, like, I think a lot of people didn't know that. So when I was like, no, Brian, virology, like, he does that. Everybody's like, I thought he was a pharmacist. No, not a pharmacist. <laughs> yeah, so, like, you're not a pharmacist. No, I am not a pharmacist. And I keep telling my students, you don't want me to be a pharmacist because, you know, I can't deal with patients. Because <laughs> you don't have any patients? <laughs> More or less. Patience. I have enough. I have enough patience to deal with students, <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. No, I, I I figured out when. So when I went to to college, I figured out almost right away that, you know, I just I don't think I could deal with patients, and um, I, I realized at that point that you know being a doctor, being a pharmacist, anything that you actually had to deal with patients, that's just not going to be my profession. Yeah. So um, I figured that out. Like I said, my freshman year, I figured that out rather early. And then I had a really good uh, professor my freshman year for my uh, intro biochemistry class. And one day after uh, a test review, you know, I was the last one to leave. I was just cleaning up and I was asking him questions. And he, he asked me, he said, so what are you going, you know, so what are you going to do when you get done here? And I was like, well, I'm a freshman. I got, you know, how much time to figure <laughs> out? But uh, I told him, I said, well, honestly, I said, I, I don't know. Um, and we'd been in class, you know, you know, for pretty much like almost three quarters of semester at that point. And you know, I got to know him fairly well and he knew, you know, how much I liked the subject and everything. And I told him, I said, I just, I, I don't think I can do the, the traditional, you know, medical, pharmacy, dental, whatever type of route. Cause I just, I, I just don't think I'd be good at dealing with patients. I think I, I enjoy medicine. I think I would enjoy all that stuff. I just don't think I could deal with patients. And at that point, he looked at me and said, well, have you considered doing research? And caught me off guard, and I was like, well, that's interesting. And so actually that next year, I started actually doing research in his lab, um, even though it wasn't uh, 
any anything medically related. He was working on or um, his lab focused on uh, uh, nitrogen fixation and soybean roots. <laughs> so a little bit different from where I am now, right? <laughs> um, slightly, um, but it, it was. It, the whole idea behind working his lab was just to get an experience, right. you know, a research experience. And I found that, you know, despite the fact that, like I said, it was more agricultural based and that was, you know, that wasn't really my, um, you know, interest. I did enjoy doing the research. Right. So he helped me, you know, through my sophomore, junior, senior year. Okay. You know, you need to do this. You know, are you thinking about this? And he, he kind of, uh, he became a, a good mentor and helped me, um, plan a future in research, so which led me to the University of Michigan, uh, medical school at the University of Michigan, to get my uh, doctorate in pharmacology. So. Right on. And you, you're, what is it, the virus you worked on that was something to do with, like, kids and blindness or something? Yeah. Um, I actually have branched out a little bit. I'm working on two different viruses right now. So the first virus that I use or that, that I've been working on the longest is uh, cytomegalovirus, and that is a... Um, um, a virus that is, it, it's basically an opportunistic virus. Um, so what they have found is that the seroprevalence or the prevalence in the, in the general population is, you know, 90 plus percent of the human population have this virus. Hmm. So you have the virus and it's latent, it's dormant, you probably won't ever know it for the rest of your life. We call it a virus of opportunity, meaning that, okay, if your immune system is suppressed, you have HIV, you or going under um, cancer chemotherapy, which usually, you know, causes immune suppression, um, you get an organ transplantation. Is usually the big ones because, by definition, if you have a solid organ transplantation, what are they going to put you on? They're going to put you on immune suppressants, yeah. so your immune system doesn't yeah. kill your new organ. Right. Well, the side effect <laughs> to that is, well, you have immune suppression. The virus decides, oh, now is a good time. So not the not. You know, not counting the fact that you're already having problems because you have an organ transplant. Uh The virus decides this is a great time to cause an infection. So um, It's a jerk virus. Yeah, it is. More or less, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I've been working on the development of drugs for the treatment of this virus. We do have drugs right now, but they are... And I tell my pharmacy students this. These might could quite possibly be, be the most horrible drugs that we use today. They are just they are just not good drugs. They work well, but what I mean not good drugs is they carry a very, very heavy adverse effect profile. Uh-huh. So it's like, okay, we're going to suppress the virus, but you're going to get this. And we mm-hmm. know you're going to get this. <clears throat> it's not like, well, if you take, you know, it's one of those things like, if you take ibuprofen over the course of a couple of weeks, you may get an ulcer. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, you take this, we know you're going to take care of the virus, but we know you're going to get this as well. Yeah, it's sucks. like, you know, this sucks. So with all that in mind, like I said, I, I for my post, so for my graduate work, I was working on drugs for the treatment of cancer, and then for my postdoc, I switched to drugs for the treatment of viral, uh, uh, of this virus of, um, of viral diseases, and the reason I can make that switch fairly easily is because the drugs, in terms of their chemical structure and nature, is fairly similar. Um, so it was more of just switching the system in which I was actually measuring and working with the with the drugs. So my postdoc advisor, like I said, he, um, he set me on, uh, I, I had several different projects working on several different antivirals for different viral diseases. I kind of latched on to one, uh, one specific project. And I've been, you know, so I started my postdoc in the, the spring of 2006, and I've been working on these drugs, you know, even up until this point. Um, 
and, and we've made progress and things are progressing and it's kind of paid off. The drug that I'm working on um, is currently, they're doing phase two trials on it right now. So it's actually, nice. you know, get to the point where <clears throat> we're actually doing something with it. And that kind of leads to my other virus that I'm working on. Um, so the drug that I've been working on since 2006, they found another indication for it. So another uh, virala, another virus that it works against. And um, so the, the, the company that owns the patent for it, um, uh, the, the CEO of the company, his name is Terry Bolin. He's, I've, I've worked with him for I don't know how many years now. He's a really great guy. I like working with him. But anyway, he came to me this past summer and said, well, you know, we've been working on this for a while and we need you, or it wasn't this past summer. Uh, yeah, it was this past summer. Um, he says, I need you to do this for me because I have no one who can do it, who can do it, and I know you can. So it's another research project. And he says, well, I need you to do it in this type of virus. And I said, well, I can do that. And I said, I, I'm due for a sabbatical. So if you want to, you know, fund and sponsor my sabbatical, I can do this. So. Um, so this fall, I'm actually doing this research project for him on this nice. this different project or this different virus, and that'll be um, I'll be doing that this fall. So, and I, I <laughs> excuse me, stupid allergies. Um, I kind of like the idea of the sabbatical because all of a sudden, and and don't get me wrong, I don't I, I enjoy teaching and I like doing everything else that you know that goes along with being a, a faculty member at Drake. But this fall is a chance for me to kind of for lack of a better word, regress. So I'm just a postdoc again. So the only worry uh-huh. in the world I have is doing my research project. Uh-huh. And I, I remember during my postdoc how much I love my postdocs. I, I really enjoyed my postdoc mentor. He was a, you know, uh, he was a, a very faithful Christian man. I learned a ton of stuff from him. And I always enjoyed talking to him. And I, I still do to this day. Um, I still text him and, and we talk, you know, quite frequently. Um, so, you know, I really enjoyed my postdoc, but I, uh, one thing I really enjoy is, you know, you get up, you go to lab, and all you got to do is this. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to worry about <clears throat> students and teaching and service projects and all this other stuff, which, like I said, it, it's, it's all well and good, and I enjoy teaching. I like doing all that other stuff, but, you know, a chance to take a break and just do research again, just full-time, nothing else. This is what I'm doing. Tight focus. You know, yeah. the more, the closer we get, my, my start date is around, you know, the beginning of August. The closer we get to that, the more and more excited I get because I'm just like, I'm almost there. I can just right. do this. So how do, how do the drugs that treat viruses work? Well, they're um, like all antimicrobials, you know, so when you're talking about antifungals or more specifically what people are used to, you know, talk about antimicrobials, antibiotics, um, I always start out telling my students the same thing. I said, okay, I know this is going to come as a big surprise or a shock to you, but you are not bacteria and bacteria are not you. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, you know I, that sounds stupid to say, but that's very profound when we talk about how these drugs work. Because you assume that that's, you know, what kills me is probably the same methodology that kills. No, see, that's, that's yeah. exactly the opposite. Right. So it's one of those, okay, so bacteria are these small things. They have characteristics, and viruses and fungus the same way. They have these characteristics that we don't have. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, so for bacteria, the biggest, you know, the biggest difference or the one that we kind of target the most, bacteria have cell walls. Well, our cells don't have cell walls. So what does that imply? Well, for bacteria, that means that they have to have all of the proteins and enzymes and materials necessary for them to build cell walls. And if the cell wall is essential for the bacteria to live, hint, it is, mm-hmm. well, if you disrupt that machinery, 
then the bacteria doesn't have a cell wall. What happens? It literally, you can go on YouTube and see this. You type in like bacteria subject to amoxicillin and it'll show you a time-elapsed video. You kind of see the outside of the shell cell shrink until a point where it can't handle the pressure and it just, it literally explodes. Ew. So, so when you talk about things like, you know, um, you know, your, your beta-lactam antibiotics, so like penicillin, amoxicillin, stuff like that, that's how they work. They just disrupt the cell wall from forming on bacteria. And we don't worry about, you know, adverse effects or problems with us because we don't have cell walls. So there's nothing to disrupt. Okay. Okay. So the same thing goes for, for viruses. Now, you know, at the end of the day, viruses are much smaller. They have less machinery, so there's fewer targets. But there are differences. You know, viruses have certain uh, metabolic processes or certain characteristics that are unique and different from us. So the goal when we do therapy... I mean, do any type of antimicrobial therapy as to what is the difference, okay? What are those differences that are essential that we can target and disrupt and cause, you know, killing the virus, killing the bacteria, killing without whatever, killing us. without killing us, right? And, and that's, I mean, when you talk about, you know, the simplicity of the therapy, when you break it down, it really is that simple. Now, the nuts and bolts of how we do that's mm-hmm. quite difficult. How much smaller is a, but, is a virus than a bacteria? Oh, uh, orders of magnitude. Really? Oh, yeah. So, you know, kind of a, you know, even a bacteria has thousands and thousands, you know, thousands upon, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of DNA base pairs and hundreds and hundreds of proteins. The largest virus, one of the largest viruses, the one that I work on, a cytomegalovirus, it has like 350,000 DNA base pairs and about 150 proteins. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, there were some estimates that, you know, the bare minimal essentials for a cell to survive in terms of growth and function enough, they estimate between, uh, estimate around 500 proteins. So even these viruses don't contain enough machinery to function on their own. So, I mean, when we're talking about microorganisms, these guys really Really are, (laughs) you know, you know, and that, and like I said, that's, you know, for cytomegalovirus, that's a large virus. Yeah. Then we have something like HIV which has about a dozen proteins and about 10,000 base pairs. And, and then when you talk about something even more problem, you know, so HIV obviously is a problem, and you talk about something even more problematic like the flu or Ebola. Once again, about a dozen proteins, about 10,000 base pairs, and yet it causes a big problem. You know, a big problem. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, these viruses are really small, but in some respects they can really kick our butt, you know. So. Is it like the number of viruses... Like as it replicates in your body, what is what is the like? I've heard of the cytokine storm or whatever cytokine cytokine storm. storm. Like, what are the the things that happen that disrupts? Like, why do people get sick and die? Specifically to coronavirus or just viruses? Just viruses in general. What? what? Um, There's a lot of different reasons. Um, You know, for HIV, it's really kind of interesting that you know if you look at it, no one in history has died from HIV. Right. Directly, right? Okay, I want to clarify that directly I because because yeah, HIV suppresses your immune system, uh-huh. and your immune system, while important, if you never get sick, you never need your immune system. Right. So, it's you like, know, so there's not a problem. But the problem comes with now you don't have an immune system, and something as simple as a cold or a yeah. you know basic pneumonia or skin infection, all of a sudden that goes from oh, you know, you'll be sick for a few days to you're in your hospital bed and dead in a week. All right. So, um, you know, so 
that virus, you know, has a different mechanism versus, say, the flu. You know, so when we talk about the, the, the Spanish flu pandemic of, you know, the early you know, 20th century, um, you know, the flu did cause a lot of problems. But at the end of the day, most of the people that succumbed to the Spanish flu didn't actually die of the flu. So when, when the flu infects your lungs, and then the same thing, ha- and, and there's a lot of similarities in this sense. There's a lot of similarities to what's going on now with, with uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-19. When the virus infects the, the respiratory tract, there's a lining in your respiratory system that protects it from the outside environment. Well, that's the primary target mm-hmm. of the coronavirus or the flu virus. So what happens is all of a sudden you have this degradation of the lining. And so the reason you're coughing and all this stuff is because the lining is literally shedding into your lungs. Well, what happens when you swallow water down the wrong pipe and water's going down and it stimulates the pressure neurons? You start coughing to try and get rid of that crap. Well, same thing's going on here. All that stuff is shedding and your lungs don't know the difference between water or anything else or whatever. It just knows there's something there that's not air. You need to cough it up and get rid of it. Well, you know, so that's why you have the cough. But the other thing that goes along with it, well, if this is a protective lining and it's shedding, it's not protecting now you don't have a protective lining. Right. So the, while the virus can cause the problem, the bigger problem is that the bacteria and stuff that you have in your mouth and in your respiratory system that are kind of there just kind of inert and dormant and just hanging out, mm-hmm. now there's nothing to stop them from actually infecting your lung tissue. Mm-hmm. You know, so the the majority of people <clears throat> from the flu pandemic, um, you know, back, like I said, in the early 20th century, the majority of people that succumbed to the flu didn't die of the virus. They died because they got bacterial infections. And since we're talking about the early 20th century, we didn't have antibiotics. Right. So you got a lung infection. You better hope your immune system worked well or you're done. Right. Um, so that was that is probably that was the. That was one of the biggest concerns, um, you know, for the flu pandemic. And the same thing goes on now. You know, so we have the coronavirus, you know, a lot of people, yeah, you should be concerned about the virus, but it's not, there's, there's evidence out there. And, and like I said, there's, you know, we talk very limited evidence because, you know, we're trying to deal with the, the disease, not necessarily, you know, how to, uh, looking back and say, okay, what was going on? So we, you know, better mm-hmm. educate ourselves for the future. But... There's some evidence to suggest that, you know, patients, yes, well, there are patients who are dying because directly because of the virus. And there are certain things the virus does that causes problems. There's also evidence to suggest that, you know, some of these patients are not dying from the virus. They're dying from the fact that they're getting bacteria, some pretty serial, serious bacterial infections. Yeah. Because there is no protective layer anymore. Yeah, and that makes sense because a lot of those people who seem to be the highest risk are smokers. Yeah. Immune systems aren't great. Um People are overweight, probably don't have the best immune system. <clears throat> it seems like the best thing from the, the very basics that I've been reading is if you are young, healthy, exercise, eat right, it's not like you can't get it and won't, and won't get really sick or won't possibly die, but it sure seems a lot less it's, likely. Uh, it's <laughs> unlikely. So, the, and actually, I, I read this. It was either today or, or yesterday, a report from the CDC and that came out of New York. Um, they found that there are there are three major comorbidities that account for like 90 plus percent of the deaths from this virus. So if you have hypertension, so high blood pressure, right? If you are obese, and we're not talking like a little overweight, we're talking 
obese, yeah. you know. And the main one that they're finding is if you have type 2 diabetes. That is the huh. biggest comorbidity for this virus to date. So I'm not saying that if you have those things that you're going to get this virus, and if you get it, you're going to die. I'm just saying that if you do have these, you need to be extra cautious and need to take as much preventative care as you can, especially if you have type 2 diabetes. And that would make sense as, as to why it seems like it's hitting older people because that's a demographic mm-hmm. that's going to have higher blood pressure, um, yeah, decent absolutely. chance. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's absolutely. all. Oof. So, so it, <clears throat> there's a couple of drugs um, you told me before that are on or close to getting ready to be released for this. Yeah. Uh, what are those? Resdizivizivir? Well, yeah, we'll talk about that one. But the first one that that are that is already approved that people are using is hydroxychloroquine. So originally, you know, designed originally and still in use today as an anti-malarial drug. Um, you know, there was some evidence to to suggest that it it, it is effective against the virus, and it's it's kind of a, an anti, just a kind of a general antimicrobial. Um, so it works against malaria, you know, a parasite. But it has other properties allow it to be an antimicrobial. You know, there's it's it's hard to say um, whether or not the drug is actually working or not. It, it, a report I saw the other day that patient, you know, doctors in intensive care units for patients who are critically ill are using the drug, and it's one of those things like, well, we're using it because we know we can. And then so the so the follow up question is, well, is it working? Mm-hmm. And the answer that most of these doctors give is, well, we don't know. Well, they're in the ICU, which means they have very serious disease. So they're taking hydroxychloroquine. They're taking a steroid for the inflammation. They're taking, you know, half a dozen drugs. So is the hydroxychloroquine doing it or is it a combination or is it some other drug? And if it works well, or if you find if you do another study, it doesn't work well. Yeah, it's like, who knows? You're only testing it yeah. on the most sick yeah. people. Exactly. So it's like, who knows? But, you know, the, the thought process is, and a lot of these intensive care doctors say the same thing, it's a relatively safe drug if you're doing it the right way. We know the drug interactions has been around forever, so we know about the drug. Right. At the very least, it's not going to hurt. Right. I've just seen, like, in the last two days, there's there's been a lot of people coming out saying, um, no, it doesn't work, and we, you know, new evidence says that it, it's no, no kind of connection or whatever. Yeah. People, that, that's we just I, you yeah. don't know. There's no you way you know. can know yeah, this no quickly. Know. Like we just started throwing it down people's faces yeah. like a week you don't ago. Know. So a lot of times, what they do with the hydroxychloroquine is that they'll give that to you, and then they'll give you another drug such as uh, Zithromax yeah. or doxycycline. Because, like I said, well, good, we're taking care of the virus. We also need to take care of the bacteria, so that's why you have Zithromax, right. Zithromycin, or right, right. doxycycline um, to kind of take care of that bacterial infection as well. Um, and that that appears to be a, a, a fairly decent combination that seems to be working. Like I said, it, it always comes with the caveat of, well, we don't know for sure because right. they're already on right. these other things, but it, it does appear to have somewhat of a legitimate a legitimate use in this case. Do you know how the hydrochloroquine, so, like, what does that do? Really? Well, see, that's that's another really thing that has people confused. There are three possibilities, and all three of them are just as valid as the other. Okay. Um, so uh, hydroxychloroquine has been found, and this is this is this brings up another interesting point. This first one, hydroxychloroquine is found to suppress or cause a suppression of some of the uh, immune system cytokines stuff. So okay. we talk about a cytokine storm causing massive amounts of inflammation and damage. 
and then you know that results in you know succumbing to the the, the to the disease, the fatality disease. Um, so hydroxychloroquine is found to have that property. What's interesting about that is, in some respects, in many respects, that mimics the action of ibuprofen. Huh. And, you know, at the beginning of all this, it was always, you know, they came out with that report in the WHO, which has since retracted it. But I remember when that first came out, the WHO, oh, don't take ibuprofen when you ha- if you have this. Right. But there's no evidence, you know, since, and then when someone pointed out to them that there's no evidence to suggest that they shouldn't, they had to retract that. Mm-hmm. In fact, given this information, I think I can make a fairly strong argument that if you get it, ibuprofen might not be a bad drug to be taking. Hmm. So the, you know, there's a good possibility the opposite might actually be true. Hmm. So the reason this whole came about is that there was a French physician who came across a patient who was taking ibuprofen for fever and stuff like that. And then when he got to the hospital, you know, the physician was like, oh, this patient is so bad. Well, the reason, you know, you could make the argument that, yes, the ibuprofen was potentiating the disease. But I think I could make a stronger argument that the, that the patient that this doctor was seeing, the ibuprofen was suppressing the disease, and eventually it just got so bad that it actually overcame right. the effects of the drug. So, of course, by the time the doctor sees him, he's in this huge mess because the drug has been suppressing right. the virus right. until that point. It's like the dam broke. Yeah. So, like I said, that, that's one possibility huh. for hydroxychloroquine, and if that's how it's working... I think we need to start making the argument that maybe these patients should maybe start taking something like aspirin or naproxen or ibuprofen, diclofenac, something along those lines, because it might work. It might be working. So anti-inflammatory is probably a good thing. I mean, like I said, right now there's no evidence for the for or against. Right. But like, you know, I was telling my students the other day too, I said, I think I can make a pretty strong argument that I think it's going to be beneficial and not detrimental. Right. Interesting. So, so another thing that um, hydroxychloroquine can do. Um, so, uh, the first step of any viral infection is attachment of the virus to the cell, and there are certain and there are very specific attachment processes. Well, another thing that hydroxychloroquine can do and has been shown to do, it has been alter. It can alter some of the surface proteins and receptors. Well. If you have a virus that attached to a very, very specific portion of the cell, and then you alter that portion of the cell, it might not attach as well. If it doesn't attach as well, it can't cause an infection, you can't get disease and all that stuff. So that is another possibility. Um, Like I said, this drug doesn't have... So these are all possibilities. Right. Um, And the final one is kind of a more direct action when we talk about the actual um, replication of the virus itself internally. And like I said, all of these are possibilities. It might be one. It might be a combination of all right, three of them that, right. that plays a role in, in how the drug works. Um, but like I said, it, like I said, it just it's interesting, you know, the possibilities. And like I said, at this point, we re, you know we're guessing. We really don't know because there's not a lot of empirical evidence right now. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Doctors right. say, "Oh, I don't think you should," or "I think that this," and well, that's great, but. Until you do the actual, you know, statistical measurements and say, yes, this is, or no, this isn't. In my mind, I think it's, it's, it's dangerous to make those assumptions. Yeah. There was a, the, the thing I read that said they definitively had said that this does not work. I think the, the 
test base was like 380 people. I was like, that is not enough data. Well, it can be depending on whether or not they have the proper controls and stuff. And and once again, are you selecting a certain population? Right, right. You know, you know the three hundred and eighty people, or even you know, even if it's a thousand. Well, if the thousand people are all going to the same hospital and all all this other, what is your variable that you're testing? I mean, are you showing the difference? Right. I, there's just a lot of. I mean, it, it's hard to do stuff in this situation. The reason I say that is, you know, you. As a scientist, I mean, I'll, I'll back up a second. As a scientist, I would say, okay, give this group of population this drug, give this group of population not the drug. If this one does better than the other one, great. Well, what's the problem with, I mean, that's as a scientific, that's great. That's how you determine this. He might be now, killing as people. a doctor, <laughs> now what are, you, what, are you, what are you neglecting the, you know, here? Well, you're neglecting the human element. Yeah. Um, these patients don't have this drug. There's a better possibility they're going to die. Well, can you live with that? I can't. I know. Right. So, you know, so having these type of, you know, situations and scenarios, it, it's it's hard because you want to give them the drug because, it, like I said, you know, when we talk about hydroxychloroquine, at the very least, it's going to be neutral. Yeah. It's a safe drug. Yeah. At the very least, it's neutral. So at the very best, we're actually doing something. Doing good. Yeah. At the very least, it's neutral. That's You know, you take it and probably nothing going to happen. Right. So, and like I said, so if you're a doctor, can you live with yourself? I, I couldn't. And, and, and like I said, there's a, and I, nor do I think that they should. Now, but that also prevents us from really understanding, right. is this working or is it not working? <laughs> right, because you don't have the data. Because you, you just, you, you don't can't know. Get so. Do you know how it works as an as a anti-malarial? Is it prophylactic? Yeah. Or is no, well, it, it can be. Okay. Um, yeah, as, a, as an anti-malarial, it causes um, DNA replication problems for the, for the parasite. Okay. So, you know, for any, for any organism to replicate, one of the first things that has to happen is you have to replicate your genetic material. Well, if you can't do that, you can't replicate. Right, right, right. You know, so for any parasite, <clears throat> any bacteria, anything else, you know, when we talk about malaria, travels to the liver, and that's where it replicates and all that stuff. Well, that's great. But if you, you know, you can be infected with the, the parasite, but if it's not replicating its DNA, it's not replicating the parasite, and, you know, eventually your immune system will take care of it. You know, so the whole idea behind a lot of these anti-malarial drugs is not necessarily to kill the parasite. If we can prevent it from replicating and just let it stay there, then your immune, your immune system, system will eventually take care of it. Yeah. So, um so yeah, so that's that's hydroxychloroquine. And what they found, like I said, with hydroxychloroquine, they've been giving it a lot in combination with azithromycin or doxycycline. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that those drugs target or do anything to the virus, but if we're talking about secondary infections, you know, mm-hmm. bacteria getting past that uh, that protective barrier, those drugs are pretty broad spectrum that they can cover a lot of things that could possibly infect you. Doxycycline would be a little bit, you know, broader in this case than. Than, azith- than azithromycin, but doxycycline does have a few more adverse effects than azithromycin. So it's you know it's a give and take in this situation. Sure, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, if you were really concerned, you'd want to give something like Leviquin. But eh, Leviquin's a great drug if you have to use it, but man, it is going to clean you out of everything. <laughs> I've got Leviquin in my drawer yeah. at home right now. Yeah, so is, yeah, we take it with us to Kenya. Yeah. Like I said, if you have to take it, it is the best drug in the world. Yeah. But man, is it going to clean you out of every bacteria that you that you ha- currently have in you, including everything in your GI tract? Yeah, which means you know you might be a little loose in the stools for a <laughs> while. 
this dude is. But nice. um, uh, so, like I said, you know, they haven't gone as far to as to use that. Right. Um, Because that, like I said, those are, you know, the fluoroquinones are extremely broad spectrum and, you know, they would really cover, I mean, literally every, almost literally everything. Um, But, you know, something like uh, doxycycline, zithromycin, a little bit more, a little more narrow, a little bit more controlled, but very good for respiratory infections. Right. right. So using those drugs is, is a pretty safe bet. What is unique about this coronavirus? Because there's more oh, than one. Oh, I haven't one. finished my drug. Oh, yes. yeah. Sorry. I have one more drug. So <laughs> All right. um, the other drug that has been gaining a lot of attention recently um, is Gilead's drug, and it's called remdesivir. Yes. So what's really uh, – so remdesivir was designed by Gilead as initially they were going to use it for – or they were developing it for the treatment of Ebola. And then when um, – I forget what company came out with the, the ZMAP drug. Um, and, fa- and then that, that drug was found to be extremely effective. Gilead was like, well, we're not going to produce this because everybody's going to use that and not ours. And right, and n- I mean, that was a very smart choice by Gilead because they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, that drug is, works extremely well. Against Ebola. Yeah, against nice. Ebola. So it's just like, you know, do we really need this? Yeah, probably not. Um, but anyway, well, obviously when the, when the coronavirus, when COVID-19 came out, you know, Gilead has this huge library of drugs. So what do they do? The first thing they do. When we get the virus, we'll replicate it. We'll screen every one of our drugs against it and see what happens. Well, it happened to be that remdesivir, their drug that they had initiated with clinical trials, um, actually had a fairly decent response. And they're like, okay, well, we've already put it through phase one trials. We'll just repurpose the drug mm-hmm. towards this coronavirus versus, you know, versus Ebola. And they started doing several phase two trials. Well, it came out... I think it was actually this week they came out with a, a, a um, uh, they finished one of their studies and found that, yeah, the patients with this recover, uh, they, they have lessening of symptoms and they recover faster. Hmm. Great. Wish I had owned Gilead stock. <laughs> no joke. Right? I mean, <laughs> so at this point, you know, Gilead, uh, you know, a lot in coordination with, um, you know, uh, President Trump and the FDA and all that stuff. When he, you know, so when when Trump had that meeting with the private companies, that Gilead was there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was one of those things where, um, and I don't know who the CEO of Gilead is currently. I know the the previous one, and I don't remember the guy's name, the per, the current CEO, but I know he was there, and, and I, I'm sure he, at that point, they had already test. I'm sure they had already tested the drug, and I'm sure he, you know pulled Trump aside and said, I got, I got one for you. Nice. What can you do to ease the red tape yeah. so we can get this going? So I think at this point, you know, it's gone through a phase two trial. I'm sure they're probably still going to try and do some type of abbreviated phase three. But I, 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 if, if I, if I um, am reading things correctly and the things haven't really, you know, progressed, um, I think Gilead's going to try and ramp up production pretty soon of remdesivir. And, you know, it'll help now a little bit, but I think the, the, the goal or the idea is, okay, let's get this ramped up and produced because, and I will say when, when this comes back in the fall, because it's going to, now we don't necessarily have that big of a problem because we have a treatment. Right, right. So, and we have a proven treatment. We have a treatment that is relatively safe. It is what they call a direct-acting antiviral, which means it's going to work directly on the virus. Might, you know, depending on the patient, might need to give, you know, doxycycline, Zithromax, just to make sure the secondary infections. But you catch it early enough, give them this drug, like I said, probably going to be just fine. That is such good news. So, 
So like I said, I, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the goal for Gilia right now is, yes, let's try and get some production up so we can help people now. But I'm not sure that they can produce enough to really take care of the situation now because the situation is, you know, quite large. So I'm not sure that they can do that now, but I know that the idea is, okay, let's get as much as we can for now, but let's get production in such a state that, you know, we can produce this, we can stockpile it so that if we need it, and I, I think it's more, it's more of the when we need it rather than the if we need it, it'll be available. And I, I think the goal for this, for Gilead and for, you know, for the U.S. in general is just, okay, let's try and get this controlled until next summer. Um, you know, a year from now, so the summer of 2021, when we have a vaccine available. Right, right. And there's some good news in the vaccine. They're starting to find that they've found some f- vaccines that are somewhat effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good news as well. Of course, that's still a long ways off from being able to be produced and all that other stuff. But there's some promise that, you know, we have some, we have some vaccines in production that seem to be, seem to be working. Right. So it's I want to get to vaccines in just a second, but <clears throat> what is what is the phase one, phase two trial entail? Like, what is that? So uh, there, you know, when you do clinical trials for drug approval, there's three. There's three. There's three clinical trial phases. Actually, there's four, but there's three that are of primary importance. So the first phase of clinical trial, you take healthy patients. You do not have the disease. You give them the drug. And the goal is not necessarily to determine, um, you know, if there's adverse effects or stuff like that. The goal is to get the kinetic profile, basically saying, okay, our best guess for dosing are these scenarios. So we're going to give individual patient populations these different scenarios, mm-hmm. and we're going to take blood measurements and all this other stuff. Which yeah. one of them is going to work the best? See what it did. Yeah. yeah. Which one's going to work the best? So, like I said, you use healthy patients, you do a pharmacokinetic profile just to say, okay, this dosing is what we need. Mm -hmm. Then you move on to phase two trials, and phase two trials are actually testing against the disease, but more likely than not, you're testing against a patient population that is non-responsive to other therapy. So, in this case, what you have is, and you know, for phase two trial for COVID-19, well, there is no other therapy, so you just pick patients who have Mm COVID-19. And you give it to them and you say, okay, how does this person respond to this drug versus what we've noticed previously? Because you're mm-hmm. not going to say, you know, because you're going to, you already have a population that has not had the drug. So you know the information about them. It took them this long to, you know, they showed these symptoms for this long. Right, right. I mean, you got that data. So now it's just like, okay, everybody who comes through the door, if they sign the little waiver, because you have to, it's a legal thing. You know, if you sign the waiver, we're going to give you this because we think it could work. And so they go through, you know, for remdesivir, it's like, okay, you have this, we're going to give this to you. And when they, like I said, what they found is that the patients have lessening symptoms and nice. they recover faster. Then you go on to phase three, which is this huge study, multiple hospitals and patients throughout the country. And you just say, okay, you have the disease, what's the current standard of therapy? You might get that, or we're going to give you this drug. We're looking for a difference. Does it work better? Does it have less adverse effects? Something to basically say our drug is better now doing something yeah yeah so at the end of the day you know when you you do that phase three trial you're hoping that by the time you finish you're like okay our drug works better it has less adverse effects and you don't have to take it as long it's kind of hard to make an you know it's kind of hard to make an (laughs) argument to the fda that we should produce this right you know i I think anybody could make that argument it works better than nothing (laughs) it works better than everything like i said I, i think it's easy to make that argument so um, so that's basically, in a nutshell, what you, you would do for phase one, two, and okay. three trial. And then after the phase three trial, if 
you submit a report and you submit everything to the FDA. They review it. Um, they have experts come in and review it, and they, and they, you know, then the final recommendation goes to yes, we approve, or no, we don't. Right. And you know, most of the time, if you get to that point where you're phase three trial and you actually submit the report, you're at the point where it's like it's highly unlikely FDA is going to say no because you've done the you've done the research and you said you know our drug is better and we can demonstrate it for whatever reasons. Right. You know what the answer is going to be. And you've, you've done this with drugs before. I have helped companies do this. I've never actually written those type of reports. Okay. But um, so like I said, the drug that, you know, that I'm working on that's currently in phase two trials, I, you know, you have to submit a report to the FDA. I haven't written any of those reports, but I've contributed to them. And I've actually at one point, I actually had to sign off on it because I had contributed right. to that report. Um. So, you know, I, I've done stuff like that before. So do we know that this drug by Gilead is not going to be harmful to people in general? Like, it seemed, people? like I said, it seems that since it went through phase one and two trials, it seems relatively safe. They haven't really found a lot of, excuse me, they really haven't found a lot of problems associated with it. Now, it's not to say that, you know, in a limited population they looked at that when they do a, a larger study that they won't find something. But it as of right now, it seems like it's... It's pretty good. It looks like it's on track. Well, and it's a situation where, like I said, you know, if it's better than nothing, it's literally better than everything. Everything, yeah. Because <laughs> there's nothing out there to treat it other than hydrochloroquine. But that, yeah. there's so much we don't know about that one. Yeah. Well, in this case, there's so much we don't know about how it works <clears throat> against the virus in this case. Right. But in terms of what we know about it, we know actually quite a bit about yeah. it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Why don't they use that as much anymore for malaria? Because there's better drugs. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I mean, you can't, I mean, you don't, it's not one of those where it's like, oh, you, we must avoid this at all costs. But honestly, in the day, you know, when we take, you know, I took, and I think you did too, you took Malarone this last yeah. time around. Malarone is a better drug. It's safer and it works. I mean, it, it works better and it's safer. I think that's what it took. Is the generic like Avaquone? No, I don't know whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. I think but anyway, um, so like I said, you know, Malarone's just, it's a better combination. It's a better drug. Sever makes you hallucinate in the not middle Malarone. of the night. Not <laughs> Malarone. Malarone doesn't. That's why I like taking it. Well, no, I think I take the other one then, because I I get the crazy dreams. Okay, then you definitely took the other one. Oh, oh, dude, those dreams are nuts. Those anti-malarial yeah. dreams, vivid as yeah. as bright as day. Yeah. Crazy. And that's why I take Malarone. <clears throat> I'll never forget having like full-on lucid conversations with Josh Heinrich. In, in Kenya, and he's not there. And I'm like, I know. Dude, I talked to him last night. Full-on conversations about, like... A seance. Like, real, real mundane things. But I wouldn't be surprised if somebody were to walk in my room, because it wasn't when Joni was there. Like, I, I was just sitting there, upright, talking to the air, because I could have sworn he was there, man. Holy crap. So Malarone. <clears throat> Malarone. Yeah. I don't... I, <laughs> I don't even go to the doctor anymore for that stuff. I've gone so many times. I, I call my doctor and be like, hey, I need the, the going to Kenya package. Yeah. And just, yeah. just How many script. days? Yeah. Here you exactly. go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's out of control. Um, so the there's a lot of vaccines in trial, though, for Yeah, there's several COVID. of them. I thought I read something like 30 or something. Yeah, in different companies trying to do different things. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, with any type of uh, vaccine, you got you to gotta find a... Um, you know, so what they're targeting is they're they're targeting a specific antigen, and more specifically, they're targeting a specific epitope on the antigen. What you need to do is, and, and what companies and and everybody else who does vaccine research is, you, need, you really need to do your homework and figure out, okay, which of these is going to be the least variable. 
you know, which one is the most conserved, which one is the, the one that if it changes a little bit, the, excuse me, the virus is not going to work as well and all this other stuff. So you really want, you need to be extremely specific on um, what you're targeting. And depending on, you know, depending on the company, depending on a lot of things, everybody's going to have a different opinion. So which means that, you know, that's with probably all a the, good thing. Yeah. Uh, which means there's a lot of, I mean, there's going to be a lot of these that don't work, but then, you know, the odds are that, you know, if there's several of them out there that's, that are being tested, Somebody's there's going to be at least it. one that works. Yeah. Um, so that's the whole idea behind this. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of money being, um, I wouldn't say given out, but there's a being a lot, there's a lot of money from the federal government right now to do Investing, vaccine research. Yeah. And vaccine research is extremely expensive. I mean, it, it's even more so than just regular drug development expensive. Sure. So, you know, so when pay, when people develop or when companies develop vaccines, I mean, they scrutinize about those things a lot more than they do about about drugs. And I'm not saying that they don't scrutinize about drugs. They really right. scrutinize drugs. And now we're talking about upping that another notch. So what did, um, rewind to antigen and... Uh, so an antigen is just a, a structure on the surface of, of anything you're trying. So in this case, we'll talk more specifically about the virus. So the virus has a, uh, has a coat on it. And on the coat, <coughs> excuse me, on the coat, there are several different structures that allow it to bind and move and all this other stuff. Well, all those structures are what we call antigens. So on those structures, on those antigens, there are certain little, very specific pieces on those structures. Now, if those pieces are variable, you don't want to target those because your, your, your vaccine is going to create a response against a very, very specific place on an antigen. Right. Well, if that specific place is changing, right. your, right. Anti your antibody and stuff like it's that just doesn't work. work. So what you want to find is something that is extremely – what they call conserved, meaning it really doesn't change over time. And if it does change, it causes this problem for the virus, so it's going to self-select that virus out of the population. Right, right. You know, so you really want to be very, very careful what structure and what very specific part of the structure you are targeting. So like I said, when they, when they create these vaccines – they're going to either create the whole, you know, this this structure. They're going to create this specific portion, do something like that, and then they're going to give that to you, and say, okay, your immune system is going to recognize it as foreign, and be like, okay, we're going to create something against that very very specific structure. So the idea is that when you introduce to the real thing, you know, your immune system, right. oh, I recognize that, therefore, so is the it, amount of response. Um, First, are, we're, we're talking about like in the in the famous COVID nineteen picture, the the gray ball with little red doohickeys on oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah, that thing. <laughs> yeah. That's not accurate though, is it? Somebody told me that that's not really what it looks like. It's what it looks like is very relative because we can't actually see it. Oh, okay. So we're taking like electron microscope pictures and stuff like it because you can't even. I mean, even under you know a light micro, you can't see that. Okay. It's just too small. So we're talking about some very refined imaging techniques. So it's like an artist rendition. Yeah, of it's like, <laughs> right. can you, I mean, can you really see it? Well, no. Okay, so. I gotcha. So is it is it true that, or have, have vaccines changed? Don't they take like a broken? Well, it depends on the vaccine, the depends on the type. For some vaccines, we're not even actually protecting you against the disease. We're protecting you against the um, the toxins. So we talk about pertussis toxin. Okay. So we're not actually protecting you from getting the disease. We're protecting you from the toxin that causes the problem. Okay. 
you know, and then some vaccines are attenuated or dead, you know, so we get the flu shot every year, which brings up another point I want to talk about. Right. You know, the flu shot every year. You're not getting the flu virus. You're getting pieces of the flu virus to initiate a response. And the reason I say I want to bring this up, and I'll say this real fast, it is going to be extremely important, I mean, vitally important, that everybody get their flu shot this fall. Because if, if, and I, I don't say if, when COVID comes back, when this virus comes back, if you get the flu on top of this, Oh, I didn't you think ain't going to make it. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. yeah. So it is, you know, my my parents are very stubborn and they don't get their flu shot. If I have to go down there, drug them to sleep <laughs> and give it to them myself, I'm going to. I am going to insist that they get the flu shot this year. You've, I mean, I, I can't emphasize this enough. What's their hand Get on your the flu, flu shot. Sh- my mom says, well, every time I get the flu shot, I always get sick. And... I, you know, I look at that and I'm just like, you can't get sick because it's not the virus. It's a piece of the virus. Right, right. And, you know, I always think, well, if you get a fever and you feel sick from getting it, great. That means your immune system is doing to create something. a response. Right. You know, so it's like, uh, you know, I would, I very rarely get sick from vaccines. You know, get sick. Right. You know, I develop a fever, all that other stuff. So it's one of those, I don't know if it worked or not. I, I'd love to have, I, I, you know, I'd love to have a fever because I know it works. <laughs> That's a good but point. I don't, but I don't get them. Right. And, the, and, and, and so I just never know. And, in fact, you know, going back to another uh, Kenya story from last year. So, of course, we, you know, we get ready and go into Kenya. You have to make sure your vaccine profile is up to date, get new vaccines. So I had my mom send me my vaccine you know, check off sheet, you know, make sure I got, you know, polio and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. Of course, there's a few that I'm missing. So I get, you know, the, the, the typhoid and I get the, the yellow fever and yellow fever is a different one because they actually give you yellow fever. Ugh. So it's one of those that if you nervous. have, <laughs> if you're immune suppressed, you cannot take that vaccine. Yeah. But they actually give you a weakened version of the actual disease. So it's like, so, yes, there is that possibility that you're going to develop yellow fever. And, of course, what do I do? I go to the doctor. I'm going to be the one in 10 million that they give this to, and I'm going to get yellow fever. Right. Well, I wasn't, but you right. know what I mean. Um, but and I, and the one thing that was missing on my uh, vaccination profile was, you know, before you go to college, you're supposed to get the, the meningitis, the mm-hmm. pneumococcal meningitis. Well, my parents didn't have a record of it, and... I remember getting it, but I don't have a record of it. So I, I go to the, the doctor for meningitis, you know, for the, the Kenya stuff and get the vaccinations. He's like, okay, I can give you the typhoid one. Yellow fever's in short supply. You'll have to go down to Polk County Health Side to do that later. He says, but I'm also going to give you the, the meningitis one because you don't have a record of that. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I had it. Well, we're just going to give it to you, you know, whatever. And so I'm sitting there like, okay, fine. Didn't think anything of it. So I get the shot. Uh, fine, whatever. And then I, I, I go to, to campus that afternoon. We had a, a, a fact. I, re- I remember this vividly. We had a faculty meeting that afternoon. And so it's about two to three hours after my doctor visit. I'm sitting on a faculty meeting. I'm sweating. I have this <laughs> fever and I feel like crap. I mean, I'm aching all yeah. over. Yeah. And I'm sitting there like, what in the world? Why do I feel like, why do I feel this bad? And I go home and I told Sarah, I said, Sarah, I feel like crap. I was, you know, I was like, I'm going to go lay down. And I really just felt like crap. 
Well, that, you know, the night I, and the fever was taken care of. The next morning I woke up, I felt completely fine. And the more I thought about it, I was like, well, let's see now, Brian. Before you went to college, you got a vaccination to protect you against mm-hmm. a certain antigen mm-hmm. <laughs> so that when you encounter that antigen, you will build an immune response. You went to the doctor and he injected you full of antigen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, of course I'm going to have a, a fever because my body's going to be like, uh-oh, there's... Time to go. Everywhere. <laughs> Let's do it. Everywhere. Get it, boys. Yeah. So, you know, for that sense, I you know, I can definitively say I am protected against <laughs> meningitis. Dude, yellow fever is the one that got me. I Number one, I got... I was like the one in five from... This is just like my basic... Um, from everybody that's gone with me, it seems like about one in five, you get the yellow fever. I got dead arm. Yeah. Like my arm ached and I just like, not just the shot site, the injection site, my whole Whole arm arm hurt. It just felt like I got hit by a car. (laughs) I was tired. Same thing, like kind of cold sweats. I was like, that was not cool. That one sucked. I, outside of the fact that it felt like I got jabbed with a pen. Yeah. (laughs) um, I I didn't have anything from the yellow fever, which surprised me a little bit. But, um, so I'm, because I didn't have anything... I'm hoping I'm protected yeah, against right. it. <laughs> right. All right. Um, I, and there's tests you can you can go in and get an antibody test to yeah. see if you're producing the antibodies. And I all need that to actually stuff, do but, that for all of those things. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I still like I said I just remember that that meningitis shot and I'm sitting there I'm like and like I said it dawns on me the next day. Well, of course uh. I'm going to have a fever and all this other stuff. So. But do you think we're probably how how far from a vaccine? A vaccine will be next year. Yeah. It'll probably be next spring, next summer. And, you know, at the end of the day, it, one of those, it's one of those things when the vaccine comes out, I mean, the, the populations you need to target and protect right away are obviously the elderly and the kids, mm-hmm. you know, because at the end of the day, what we're going to find is, I think when everything's said and done with all this and they actually go back and actually do all of the studies and the data, I think you're going to find that the, you know, the, the late teenage, the 20s, 30s, and early 40s individuals, I think you're going to find that there's like 50, 60 plus percent of, of that population that's already had the virus. Yeah, they just don't. They just didn't know it. Right. Um, I, I think there's a very real population that the or a very real um, uh, probability right now that you know you look at you know we've had however many cases. I think if you multiply that by four or five is what the real numbers are. Yeah, I did so, too. They, and they did that, that study out in um, California. California. Yeah, and they, and they found that it's at least three times. It's at least three times higher than what they're reporting. Right. Yeah. So what makes this virus unique, Di- more than the flu or different from the yeah. flu or whatever? Well, um, so this is a, what they call a beta coronavirus. Um, and uh, the beta coronaviruses... <laughs> it's like a beta male? Yeah, yeah not exactly. <laughs> the beta coronaviruses are um, uh, they're mammalian viruses, but they're not human viruses. Okay. So there have been, so what happens is, is you have a virus that jumps species. And it's not necessarily uncommon. I'm sure everybody remembers from probably like nine, 10 years ago, we had the swine, swine flu. flu. Well, it's not the swine flu because we just happen to like pigs. Mm-hmm. Okay. This was a flu, you know, a, a swine, a pig influenza that just happened to uh, ad- adapt, evolve, mutate, whatever, you know, whatever word you want to use that allows it to infect humans. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes with these these beta coronaviruses. So, you know, in the past 20 years, we've had three beta coronavirus infections. We had the SARS pandemic, or I wouldn't even call it a pandemic, but right. that SARS from like, what was it, 03, 04, yeah. or something like that? Yeah, SARS-1. Yeah. And then we had the, the MERS from like 
the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Mm-hmm. That was it's a beta coronavirus that was in, I think, 2011, 2012, something like that. And now we have the SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very similar to SARS, um, in, in that respect. Uh, it's it's another beta coronavirus that just happened to jump species. Does that give us any like um, head start on developing meds or anything? Because yeah, um, they were actually so one of the the one of the first vaccines to actually get approval or that works is a vaccine that was actually being developed to combat MERS. Yeah. So there's enough similarity there that they were able to, you know, kind of adapt that. Um, so SARS-CoV-2, our current coronavirus, um, very likely originated in bats. Okay, so it is very likely. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is a bat virus that just happened to jump species. Um, how it jumps species, that's that's another that's another that's another issue, and there's there's some talk about possibilities there, and I think one's more likely than the other. It was from a lab, I know <laughs> it. That's what everybody's saying now. Yeah, there's. I, I think that's unfortunately is a very real possibility that you know you look at all the data and you know, of course you know. So why you know? So the the question comes: Why is China trying to cover up its numbers and trying to play the good Samaritan and all this other stuff? Well, at the end of the day, it's probably because they effed up. Yeah, well, you said this to me weeks ago when they yeah. were still like, no, definitely not from a lab, definitely not from a lab. And I was like, yeah, kind of yeah. maybe it was from well, a lab. Well, at the time, it was one of those, well, it, we know it's not, enge- let's put it this way, we know it's not engineered. Yes. So we know, that the, we know that nobody in China at this point actually intentionally engineered this virus. But there's a difference between not intentionally engineering it and then selecting for it and examining it. And it appears, like I said, there's pretty good evidence to suggest that there was a lab in Wuhan, China, that, you know, one of their top virology labs in that country that was examining this virus and they got careless and patient zero got it. He went out to the community and then we have a problem. How does, how does a virus, how does that happen in a lab? I mean, I, mean, I assume they're you taking... Get care, you get careless. <clears throat> so whenever you do, and I, I, I have this equipment at Drake. Okay, because, you know, I work with viruses and some of the viruses I work with are actually. So one of the viruses I work with is is attenuated, meaning that you could drink a gallon of the stuff and you're not going to get sick. Right. Okay. Um, So it's a laboratory strain only. But then there are other viruses that I work with that are not attenuated, meaning that, okay, I take this vial, I drink it, I inhale it. I'm going to get sick. But we have certain protective equipment at Drake. We have fume hoods and and. negative pressure flow systems to keep everything in its proper place. So you're, you know, you're kind of working under this, you know, this hood. And so you're reaching in like this to keep everything away from you in this negative pressure system so that it doesn't spread. And there's filters to clean everything out and all this other stuff. Well, if you get careless and you happen to dump some, you know, you happen to take it out, oops, Mm -hmm. or you dump something on your hand and then forget to wipe your hand or sterilize your hand, then you take it out and you're like, oh, I got, you know, an itchy eye. Well, now you have this glove with this virus that's right by your respiratory system. Oops. Uh So, like I said, at the end of the day, it's if, 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 and I'm going to say if in this case, if they were working on it and they got, and, and something like that got, and somebody got careless, that's probably what happened. Right. And then the patient, you know, gets the disease. They're asymptomatic for three, four days, five days maybe. They don't show any symptoms. But just because you don't show symptoms doesn't mean you're not producing virus and you can't be 
contagious. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, I'm going home and I'm seeing my family. I'm going out to happy hour in China. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now everybody I'm around is sick. And then by the time you figure out what's going on, not only am I sick, but they've contracted it. They're contagious. They're sick. They've spread it. It's It's too late. Yeah, Yeah, it's too late. So... um, so that's that. There, that's the possibility of what was going on there. So now, in terms of the virus itself, um, like I said, beta coronavirus. Um, you, it's this one's bats, jump species. This one is particularly nasty, and and what's really interesting about this beta coronavirus, it, it's only one thing that's different. And on the on the surface of the the coronavirus, there's what they call a spike protein. And the reason they call it a spike protein is when you look at it under an electron microscope, what does it look like? Spike. A spike. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's two <clears throat> pieces to this spike protein. So it's, it's, a, it's what they call a, a pro-protein, meaning that it has to be activated for it to work. So lucky us, okay, um, there is a, on the surface of our cells, particularly in our respiratory tract or epithelial tract, there is a certain protease that will cleave this protein and activate it. What's particularly dangerous, or one of the things that's particularly dangerous, is that this protein in this particular SARS virus is actually a really strong substrate, meaning that it's going to, it's going to work extremely efficiently and well at activating that protein. Mm. You don't want that. Right, right. <laughs> you know? So more so than all the other coronaviruses that people come into contact with, this one is activated more efficiently in us than any other coronavirus. Okay. So not only so the drug so the virus is activated more efficiently. Well, great, you don't want that. Right. The other thing that happens is that once it's activated, it actually binds tighter and better to the cell surface receptor that for, to cause infection. So not only is it activated better, it binds tighter. It's more efficient. Okay. So you have a double whammy there. So the reason that this virus is more contagious, infectious, and more of a problem, it's just more efficient. I mean, at the end of the day, it's right. not that anything it does is different from the other coronaviruses. It's just better at doing them. That's the only difference. Yeah. And at this point, we're talking about there's some estimates to suggest that it's, it's as much as a 10 to 20-fold improvement in efficiency. Well, that's a big deal. That is a big deal. Yeah, and that's that kind of what it seems like. I don't know where the death rate is going to, the, the morbidity rate is going to end up at because, <clears throat> like we said, it's, there's probably a lot more people who have it. It's just that so many people are getting it, yeah. and it seems that's, that's easy the, to get. Yeah, that's the that's the problem. I, I it'll be interesting to see. I think at the end of the day, when we're talking about a fatality rate, and I don't want to make light of these numbers, I think we're going to see a fatality rate of a, hovering around one percent. I'd be high. I'd be imp- I'd be impressed if it's over that. Yeah, but still, that's I mean that's high. If we're talking about you know you know if we're talking about a thousand people. You know, one percent is still a significant number of people. But we're not talking about thousands; we're talking about hundreds of thousands to millions. Yeah, millions, you know. <laughs> this so, is the scary part. <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to make light of those numbers, but you know, right. it, yeah, it's it's going to be one percent. It could it could hover as much as one percent, and I, that's a significant portion of the population. Don't get me wrong. Um, so, like I said, I just don't. I don't want to make light of those numbers, yeah. but yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 it's, 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 it's more dangerous than obviously the the normal coronaviruses. I was going to ask you about the, the flu. So the the drugs that we're using or trying to get developed for COVID nineteen, 
Do they have stuff similar to that for the flu? Um, there is a drug that's used in Japan for the flu that they have found to have uh, COVID-19 activity. So Japan is pursuing use of that drug. Okay. And in some instances, Japan, because they know that it works and it's already approved for the flu, we're going to go ahead and use it. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been approved in the U.S., and I don't think anybody's going to pers- pursue that, especially now that you know remdesivir seems to be Close. you know, going well. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that, that I think, is why... Um, this has been such a bigger deal because everybody keeps saying, oh, it's like the flu. Yeah, you got yeah. sick and some people It is die, and it isn't. Some people don't. Yeah. yeah. But there is a, so even when the flu shot isn't spot on, what I've heard is that it, it will lessen to a great degree the flu symptoms yeah, that you get. Exactly. And like how severe the flu is regardless. If you still get the flu, if you had a flu shot, you're better off. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And, and we got uh, unfortunately, you know, I hate to be the people that are um, involved or that are, uh, designing the flu vaccine for this next year. You know, no pressure, but we need you to be <laughs> at that high end yeah. rather than the low end this yeah. year. No pressure. <laughs> and why is it, like, so it's because the flu mutates. So Yeah, uh, the flu has what they what, uh, a property, what they call antigenic drift, which means that it changes year to year. So when the, when the flu virus replicates, on average, when it replicates, it, induce, it, it will introduce one change to its genome. Um, sometimes those changes are innocuous, meaning you're never going to notice them. Who cares? You know, type of changes. Sometimes those changes will result in, you know, we talked about those antigens, a change in the antigen mm-hmm. configuration. Well, if the antigen changes, then your previous flu vaccine that worked against that specific antigen, now it's not going to work because it's changed. And, you know, they found that that's basically what happens every year. So you, you need to get your flu shot every year because of the fact that this virus changes. And how, are they basis. just guessing? Like we think it's going to do. This. No, there's a there's a very specific process. I'm not a I'm not you know very um, knowledgeable how that process works. Right. But there's a, you know it's not like we're going to guess. They they really do go through and say okay, this is what we know. This is what um, is happening based on what we have been able to determine. This is the most likely culprits. And you know when you get your flu vaccine, you're actually getting protected against four strains right. of influenza. So they. You know, they, they, with some degree of certainty, they can say, okay, we think it's going to be likely one of these four. Right. Now, sometimes they're spot on, and sometimes, oops, something happened, and, you know, we're not right. Nature took a left, yeah. and we thought it was going to take a right. So, so does, does, do we know if COVID-19 does a lot, has a lot of that drift? It, every virus is going to have drift. Now, the real question for this is, does it have a lot? Um there's this is where it becomes confusing because there's mixed report once again there's mixed reports out there there's a lot of detailed study that came from scripts out in california to suggest you know this is a pretty stable virus meaning which is great because that means you can give a vaccine we're probably good but then you know they've done they've done uh, studies and they've compared you know gen- uh, genome profiles and stuff like that where they found oh we have differences but like I said, with every you know, with every virus, there's going to be drift. It's all it's just a matter of how much there is. Right. And at this point, it's kind of too early to tell. I tend to, excuse me, I tend to favor the idea that this one. I'm hoping and praying that this one tends to be one of those that doesn't drift that much. And if it does, I'm hoping that there is a enough um, cons- conservation in certain antigens that even if it does drift, it's drifting elsewhere besides these 
these antigens that we can build vaccines right. to. And then, like I said, the the companies that are developing these vaccines. I guarantee you, they're looking at stuff like that. Right. You know. Right. So the the hope is that even if there is drift, we're hoping that the hope is that we find a a, cons- a very conserved region that doesn't go undergo drift that much or at all. Right. So. No. No. Why is it that viruses? Flu, COVID seem to have this dip in the summer. Is it just because of the temperature and um, humidity? Well, and well, a lot of it, you know, there's there's several factors that go into it. The first one is, you know, I always I always catch my students in this one because it's one of the no dumb ones because they come up with. I said, what is the biggest factor? You know, people get the flu during the winter and not during the summer. And they come up with some. I mean, they're not bad answers. They come up with some pretty interesting <laughs> Creative answers. Creative guys, yeah. And then I, you know, and I, you know. And, you know, I'll write them up on the board. I'll give them, like, the top five answers. And they always get, like, numbers two through five, and they can't get number one. And, you know, they get done with this, and every one of them will look at me and say, it's something stupid, it's obvious that we're missing, right? And I said, said, yeah, it actually is very stupid, and it's very obvious. People just don't hang out as much? They don't. (laughs) They are not in close proximity indoors as much. Right. (laughs) That's it. So the fact that, you know, people go outside, they're not as, you know, in close proximity anymore. They're doing stuff. They're out in the sunshine. They're out doing all this stuff. They're just not in close proximity as much anymore. You know, if you're sick and you're spreading contagion to no one. Right. No one gets sick. And and UV, like sunlight is. And UV will kill the virus. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so of course I tell the same, and they're just in like, well, yeah. <laughs> so we're we're likely to have a, a dip in the summer. There's a very good possibility. Yeah. I mean, there's some people suggesting that that might not occur. Um, in this case, it's a po- there's a possibility, and there's some good evidence to suggest that it might not occur. There's a possibility it might not occur due to the just the increased efficiency of the virus. Um, I tend to think that. Despite everything, despite you know, or despite all of that information, I, I think this is going to behave like pretty much every other virus, and it's, I think it's going to suggest that it's going to be susceptible to the same conditions during the summer as everything else, which makes me think that you know, it, there's we're going to see a dip. Yeah, my so, only issue is like socially, people are going to want to hang out again. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like because we haven't been able to. Normally, you'd be right. You know, May and June come around, everybody's outside, and like, dude, everybody's going to go. I want to go on my bike ride and do yeah. all this stuff. No, now it's going to be, I want to go over to Bob's house for a barbecue. Yeah, everybody's going to storm into bars and yeah. nightclubs and just back into buildings. And that's part of the concern, too. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, when they roll this thing back, it's they're going to have to do it um, concertedly and bring well, people and back. Well, I've, I've, I've scrutinized the... Um, the CDC and the you know the from the, the from the White House the recommendations for rolling back the economy and getting things going mm-hmm. again, you know, I, I, there's been a lot of criticism that it's not detailed enough. I think it lays out a pretty and and you know I don't think it's necessarily designed to be extremely detailed because, and I, I think this is done intentionally and I think it, there's some very good rationale for it. We are not New York. We are not California. Right. These are kind of general guidelines to say, okay, this is kind of the framework. Now, you know, the esteemed Kim Reynolds can go out and do her thing versus Como can do his thing versus every other governor can do their thing that's specific and is tailored to their state, which I think is, you know, I think is a very smart thing to do because it's one of those, no offense to New Yorkers in California, 
but I don't want to be put under the same restrictions as them because I don't think we are going to have as severe a disease, especially not as New York. Right. I don't think we're going to have that severe of a state. So they need to be a little bit more careful there than I think we need to do here. So I don't want to be under their heavy restrictions when we really probably don't need to be. Yeah, and I had, I had this discussion so, online with someone just the other day. They're like, everybody's got to stay home. We've got to lock everything down. I go, I was not locked yeah. down. And we're okay. Yeah. <laughs> like we're not. Well, it's really funny is that, you know, you know, we t- they talk about states that don't, that are not under a, you know, shelter in place order. We pretty much are in everything but name only. Yeah. I mean, you look at everything that, you know, you know, the governor Reynolds has done and she has pretty much done everything except for literally issuing, yeah. a st- you know, shelter in place order. I, I so, think it's great. No, I mean, yeah, and I, I think for the state of Iowa, what she's done is worked. Yes. Um, now, do I? Th- and, you know, at the end of the day, is there going to be something else that could have been done? Maybe. At the end of the day, are we still going to have deaths and we're going to still have people oh, sure. infected? Unfortunately, yes. You do the best of what you can with what knowledge you have. Well, and, I think- and honestly, like I said, I, I think that what's working here, or what she has done, is worked here. Oh yeah. Now you know, would what she has done here have worked in New York? New, New York would have been. They'd be all dead screwed. by now. <laughs> yeah. New York would have been screwed. So you know, so for something like New York, I think they needed stricter guidelines or stricter uh, impositions and all this other yeah. stuff. And you know, for them and their situation, that was correct. And yeah. the flip side of that, should should what had New York done work uh, didn't here? Well, would it have worked here? Yes. Would we have seen a fluctuation in the numbers we have? Maybe, Somewhat. probably not. Yeah. And if it is, it might not have been statistically measurable. Right. And that's the other the other so, thing I find um, challenging because that that argument that I got in specifically launched from, you know, the people in Milwaukee. Um, mm. kind of where I, in the area where I grew up, I actually yeah. outside of there, but like Milwaukee is super locked down, but there's a ton of Wisconsin that isn't Milwaukee. Yeah. And that's going to be the case. I think for, for Iowa and a great deal, because our first hot spots were of course, these podunk middle of the nowhere places, because that's where people got off of these cruise ships. It's not where they got off the cruise ships. <laughs> obviously. They got off the cruise ship and then flew <laughs> home and that's where yes. they were. Yeah. yeah. And um, so that would, you know, those, those counties should shut down quickly, but then you got, these counties with nobody in them, <laughs> like you that know, has the disease, or yeah. no one reported with it, right? Yeah. But like, are, are do you really gonna, need to lock them down? I mean, yeah, are exactly. We, are we gonna do we shut, really need to shut and lock this doesn't county make down? Any sense? Yeah. So I, I hope I hope that that starts to come into consideration soon. Where, and I, and I'm not a, a Reynolds fan or disfan. Like I, I'm yeah. not. And neither I. You know, at the end of the day, I. But she's killing this thing, man. She's I doing think a she's great job. I think she's got this under control. I yeah. think she's done a great job. In in this instance, I think yes. I think she has done a really. Great she's job. not gonna lose another election as long <laughs> as she's got air in her lungs. I'm telling you, I think people are a pretty big fan. Well, it's really funny. I always, whenever she comes on TV. Um, so the 4th of July parade a couple of years ago for the, for the election when she was, so I guess that was what, two years ago in 2018, mm-hmm. she was in the West Des Moines to parade and she was going down and she was, and I, I, I really, I appreciated this at the time. She was going around and she was shaking hands, but she was shaking hands specifically targeting the little girls uh, on the side. Her. Yeah. And so eventually, of course, Bethany's standing there trying to get candy. She's shaking. I, I couldn't get my phone out yeah. fast enough to take the picture. <laughs> So afterwards, Bethany, you know, Bethany comes back. She's got all this candy. He's like, whose hand did you shake? She's like, I don't know. And I said, Bethany, that was the governor's hand. And she's like, 
What's a governor? Gov- no, she was like, she knew what it was. She was like, she was like, governor of the state of Iowa? I was like, yeah. She's like, oh. <laughs> That's kind of okay. a deal. Yeah, her composure, I think, has been awesome. Like, she's... Yeah. She's solid. She's she's you know clear, concise, and then the second it's like a question about something a little bit different, she's like, you know what, I'm gonna have so and so answer. Just yeah. get out of the way. And yeah, I think, like I said, in this instance, I think she's done a very good job, and I, I think that um, everything I've read, everything she, I, I I've seen come out of her office, I think she's taking a more um, uh, a more conservative approach to reopening the economy here in Iowa, which is probably not a bad thing. Um, but I also think that um, she'll be able to do it on a, a, a probably on a very you know pretty fast track timeline. I mean, obviously, I think she'll adhere to the guidelines from right. the, to the CDC. Right. But I don't think that you know when it says fourteen days for phase one, I got a feeling that she'll literally do the fourteen days because we'll have met all the other criteria. Right, right. You know, I don't think th- I think there's going to be some states that you know. They say 14 days for phase one if you've met these conditions. I think there's going to be some states that they're going to have to do 21, 28 days because some of those conditions are not going to be, you know, right. met. I, you know, with everything going on here, I really do think that, you know, if this one says 14 days, it's going to be 14 days. And phase yeah. two is going to say, you know, 21 days. I really think it's going to be 21. You know, I, I think whatever the timeline is, I think because of what's happened here and the, the leadership and everything that's gone on to, you know, to kind of mitigate the, 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 the disease here in Iowa, I, I think we're going to be, like, right on those, those yeah. benchmarks, so, so which is really great. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. What else do we need to know about coronavirus? Don't get it. How, how do you not get it? How's <laughs> the best way to not get it? Well, you know, the, the, the thing about it, you know, right now is real simple. You know, they, they tell you to, you know, wash your hands, do your social distancing, all that stuff. And that really is probably the best thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, there's mixed feelings about wearing the mask when you go to, like, Walmart, Target, Hy-Vee, all those other things. Do they work? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know. Um, well, they always say the mask isn't for you. The mask yeah. is for other people. And I get that. But. Yeah. So it's one of those things where, you know, I would um, I would tell everybody, you know, at this point, I would say, you know, it's been a rough, you know, obviously a couple months with the restrictions in place and the self-quarantining and all this other stuff. You know, you look outside and you see the weather and you're just like, you know, I really want to. I, I, I get it because I really <laughs> want to, too. But, you know, we're, we're coming to the point where, um, you know, Iowa is just, you know, kind of now doing their, their peak phase and stuff like that right. and, and all that stuff. So now is the time to, you know, as much as you really want to, now is the time to really buckle down and, you know, let's ride this out for another couple of weeks. You know, so the mandates for Iowa are, are set to expire on April 30th. I could see them being extended probably another couple of weeks so we're talking, I, I think at this point, the more safer bet would probably be Mother's Day weekend. Right. Um, so I would, you know, uh, I would encourage everybody, you know, as much as you want to, and like I said, I really want to, too. Don't get me wrong. But I, I, it re- this is the time to really, really buckle down and be like, okay, we've d- it's one of those, we've gone this far, let's just ride this out, because if we don't, then all of a sudden, you know, that downward spiral doesn't become downward Jumps anymore. Again. It goes up, and all of a sudden, we're all in trouble. Yeah, we're all of a sudden nothing. we're in trouble again. Yeah. So, 
you know, my advice, like I said, is, you know, like I said, wash your hands, do your social distancing. But, you know, it, it's one of those things, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, keep your quarantining what you've been doing. Yeah. You know, if it's been working, keep doing it. It's amazing to me how, how quickly everything turned from back in March when it, when like it was just starting to be a, a thing where people were like, oh, we got to go buy toilet paper. And like you'd go to the, to Costco and I saw a few people wearing masks. I saw two people wearing full on gas masks, like the cover your yeah. eyes and like yeah. buckle behind your head. And it was like at that point, Everybody was looking at those people being like, what a bunch You're of an morons. <laughs> yeah. And then now I go into the high V without a mask on. Everybody looks at me like, like, look at that asshole <laughs> not wearing a mask. Like, jeez. <laughs> yeah, I went into Target on on Wednesday without one. Yeah. I got a few looks. I, 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 will, I will say that at Target, from what I was observing, it was probably about 50 50. Yeah. So, and it's one of those things where, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, do the mask works. Yeah, maybe. I mean, at the end of the day, I, it's one of those things where I think it's more of a um, a comfort thing rather than yeah. an actual evidence based thing. Um, That's where human. I say that. I was gonna say I say that, but then I wear a mask when I'm at Drake because I have to. Right. <laughs> right. You know, whenever I walk into a building until I get to my office or my lab, I have to have a mask on. Yeah, but a big piece of it is this weird. Um, reality that that humans are these people who are, are creatures who do weird things for weird reasons like we're not we're not all dr spock we're not no. vulcans so like i've seen people wearing masks where like their nose is out of the mask <laughs> and then they're like itching their nose and i'm like so not only is have you now because you're wearing a mask i'm i'm invincible i have a mask on your nose is out so it's not helping you keep me from the virus if you have yeah. it you're touching your nose with your hand which, if you got it from that shopping cart, is now in your nose, and you have it. <laughs> like the the mask, I think gives this. And that's why it's also a false sense of yeah protection. My you know? my parents were asking me about wearing um, doing something or whatever it was, and, and wearing gloves. And I told them, no, 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 don't wear gloves because you when you go in that store, you have to treat your hands like you know everything around you is lava, and or the second you pick it up, now it's in your cart. Now you now you sanitize your hand because what a lot of people are doing is they're wearing their gloves. Um, and I've seen people do this in the parking lot, open their car door, get in with their gloves on and drive home with their gloves on. Yeah. So now it's on everything your that's wheel. on your gloves was now on your steering. Wheel. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> and I've done this. So, you know, we um, Sarah's like, oh, you need to take some some um, some Purell, some sterilizer with you whenever right. you go to whatever. It's like, oh, no, I don't. I, I'll figure something out. So you know what I do? I have these two little, I have these little two milliliter cap tubes that I fill with 100% isopropanol. <laughs> and I put them in my pocket. Everywhere I go someplace, I go to the bank, get you know, my stuff from the bank, back in the car, open the vial, 100% isopropanol, wipe my hand down. So it's rubbing alcohol, 100% yeah. rubbing alcohol. And it evaporates everything. real fast. Yeah, and- it kills everything. Put the vial away, go to next store. Go in there, come back out. What do I do? Open the second vial. <laughs> rubbing alcohol. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, everybody, you know, kind of does their own thing. But uh, Yeah, and, and this virus isn't, like, more robust against... Stuff like that, no. No, it's just, like, a regular old... It's a coronavirus. It's going to be susceptible to all those things, yeah. Okay. Like I said, the only difference between it, like, like we talked about, is just it's more efficient at infecting. 
Yeah, I think so. that's that was part of my misunderstanding early when we were still trying to do communion. It was like we got to buy this the nuclear bomb of disinfectants yeah, to yeah. kill everything. No, like, no. It, like I said, it, I mean, it's something as simple as even like I said, something as simple as rubbing alcohol. Yeah. So. Noise. Not nice. that I suggested, but you could pour your whiskey on there too. You know, that would work too. I, you know, I read somewhere that whiskey happens to be the best at at being antimicrobial, um, because like you know, booze A versus booze B has about the same amount of alcohol in it. Yeah. But the other stuff that's in whiskey is more antimicrobial than say vodka or gin, like yeah. the other stuff. Interesting. So. And but the article was also quick to say it's not very good at it. So it's, <laughs> because it's better than vodka doesn't mean it's good. Like yeah. it's, don't be an idiot. But uh, what else I was going to ask you about the? Oh, what, what about like immune system? What do, do you know anything about? Like what should we do for ourselves to be robust? Um, you know, and when, when they were talking about whenever you get sick, you know, the, the the simplest thing to do, you know, your vitamin C. So I mean, literally, drink your glass of orange juice. Right. You know. Um, vitamin C is a, is a very good immune, I wouldn't say immune stimulant, but it's very good at, uh, immune response because it, you know, that vitamin C anti, um, the antioxidant property, stuff like that. Eat healthy. I mean, don't, you know, don't right. drink a lot of crap. Don't eat a lot of crap. I mean, eat, eat a fairly sensible diet, Yeah. but take your vitamin C, take, you know, either your tablet in the morning, drink your glass of orange juice, have your vitamin water, yeah. you know. That's what I've heard is vitamin C and, and vitamin D. Yeah. Like well, vitamin, I mean, vitamin D right now, or excuse me, vitamin D was good, but right now, honestly, self-quarantine, go outside and stay in the sun for half an hour. Yeah, right. I mean. Right. <laughs> I found out, I did blood work probably two or three years ago in the middle of winter, and it came back, I was low on vitamin D, and I was like, oh man, that's not good. How, which, how much should I take? Blah, blah, blah. And the doctor was like. Stand outside for five minutes. Yeah. Well, it was January, yeah. <clears throat> but he goes. Everybody in Iowa in January yeah. is low on vitamin D. Yeah. Don't, don't stress. Yeah. <laughs> Have so, a clear day. Go outside and stand, you know, stand with your face in the sun for uh, 10, 15 minutes. So nice now. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely love it. All right, man. Appreciate you coming in. Yeah, no problem. Uh, this should probably come out. Let's see, tomorrow's Friday. I bet I get it out on Monday. Just because. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's, uh, let's all not get coronavirus and die. That, that would be uh, preferable. <laughs> I think that would be a good, I think that's a good plan. All right. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you no later. problem. Uh, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed talking to Brian. Uh, always fun talking to Brian. Dude just knows a lot about uh, a number of different things, but man, does he know a lot about viruses, which is good. He should definitely know that stuff um, as a professor <laughs> of pharmacology. So... Thanks so much uh, to the good doctor and for um, him coming in to just sit down and clear up some things, some questions I had and I think a lot of people had about this virus. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back on the road of normalcy, whatever that's going to look like after this, because I don't think we're ever going to be back to normal. But um, that's all right. I know, like I said, there's a lot of opinions out there. And just this last week, uh, I said to a lot of people that I am not, uh, you know, a pharmacologist or a virologist or an economist, but I do know people pretty well. And I think we all need to just make sure we're being kind to each other, connecting with each other. If you can't meet with somebody... Uh, just just get, connect with them over Zoom or something because that is what we're dying for right now is some connection. So anyways, I uh, hope you enjoyed, and uh, until next time, be good. <laughs> <laughs>